I'm Siva Vadianathan. And I'm Emily Burrell, filling in this week for Will Hitchcock. And from the University of Virginia's Deliberative Media Lab, this is Democracy in Danger. Six years ago this month, Evan Mawarere made a fateful decision that helped bring down a dictator. For almost 37 years, Robert Mugabe had ruled Zimbabwe in Southeast Africa with an iron fist. Here's Evan. Part of the terror that happened to people during that time includes an exercise, one of them called long sleeve, short sleeve. And long sleeve, short sleeve is where the militia of ZANU-PF, Robert Mugabe's militia, they go into rural areas and they ask people in that community, which is a community that would have voted against Robert Mugabe, they ask you whether you want to have your arm chopped off with a machete, either on the wrist or on the elbow. Mm. You used your hand to vote, we're going to chop that hand off and let that be a reminder. But by April 2016, like so many of his fellow citizens, Evan had had enough. At the time, he was a little-known pastor, and, sick of feeling afraid, of feeling dejected, he sat down by himself and hit record on his smartphone's camera. And behind me was the Zimbabwe flag. I always had one in my office because, for me, being a part of Zimbabwe meant that I was proud to be a citizen who could contribute to it. But at that very point, I remember grabbing the flag and I'm recording this video actually not knowing what I'm what I'm creating. I didn't have a script. I didn't have I didn't know how long the video was. I was just frustrated. I was tired. I was angry. I was upset. Mm-hmm. I was I was embarrassed. This flag. This this beautiful flag. They tell me that the the green The green is for the vegetation and for the crops. I don't don't see any crops in my country. The yellow, he recalled, stood for the country's rich mineral deposits. The The red, for the bloodshed in its liberation movement from white minority settlement rule in the 1960s and 70s. Black was for Zimbabwe's African majority, exploited throughout Great Britain's settler colonialism. And white, that symbolized peace and freedom. So it was a promise as far as I knew. But that day when I sat in front of my phone, which was propped on my Bible in my small church office, where nobody knew who I was, this flag felt like a fraud. And yet for some reason I don't feel like I am a part of it. It was a rant. I was ranting against the system that had destroyed Zimbabwe. But I was also issuing out a rallying call to my countrymen to say, why have we never done anything about this? Why have we always expected someone else to fight for us? Are you from Zimbabwe? And sometimes when I look at the flag, it's not a reminder of my pride and inspiration. It feels as if I just want to belong to another country. This flag. Overnight, Evans' rallying cry went viral on the internet, along with the hashtag under which it traveled, this flag. And by the summer, thousands of citizens were pouring into the streets of Zimbabwe's capital, Harare, and other cities across the country. Together, they demanded an end to Mugabe's brutal, economically disastrous reign as president. And here's the amazing thing. After months of police arresting peaceful protesters, including Evan, after beating them in the streets, firing tear gas and water cannons at them, Mugabe, then 92 years old, resigned. He had lost the support of his own ruling party, the ZANU-PF. 
he lost the support of his people, and he lost the support of the military. It was euphoric. It was, it was like seeing the Red Sea part. I, I, can't, I can't explain to you. It's the one thing that most Zimbabweans had never thought they would see in their lifetime. Because Robert Mugabe had promised that he would die in office. In fact, his wife had said that he will rule from the grave. And at that point, everyone is thinking, there is no way. There is no way that it can get worse than Robert Mugabe. Even if we have a goat come in to be president, it'll get better. Sadly, though, things haven't gotten much better in the last few years. ZANU-PF remains the ruling party in Zimbabwe. Inflation has run as high as 300%. And Mugabe's hand-picked successor, Emerson Mangagwa, has been just as ruthless as that old goat and worse. According to Human Rights Watch, security forces continue to kidnap and torture activists. They're still attacking protesters. They're still silencing journalists. Evan himself has fled into exile. Still, there are glimmers of hope. Last month, the opposition won big in the midterms, claiming 19 of 28 parliamentary seats. That, despite ongoing political violence. In February, a machete-wielding gang attacked a group of rally-goers. But pro-democracy activists are pressing ahead towards next year's national election. When we spoke with Evan recently, we asked him to tell us more about the roots of Zimbabwe's opposition, and in particular, the role of the late Morgan Chengarai. Chengarai led the Movement for Democratic Change through the early 2000s and was second prime minister of the country from 2009 to 2013. Morgan Chengarai remains a remarkable figure. He formed what was one of the most meaningful opposition movements to Robert Mugabe's regime and one of the movements that bore the brunt of the brutality of that regime. He was a unionist, a trade unionist. And in the late 90s, um, after trying their best to represent the workers and to represent the lives of people that were being decimated by uh, economic mismanagement of Robert Mugabe, they eventually decided that one of the only ways in which they were going to bring change to Zimbabwe was to form a political party, that it was not enough to just be a trade unionist, but they had to roll their sleeves up and claim a spot in the governance arena. And so they start this movement, which begins to grow almost instantly. It has wild support. People love it. People love him. But Robert Mugabe, being Robert Mugabe, sees a threat and goes after Morgan Changirai as, a, as an individual and after his movement with the most brutal of tactics and weapons you've ever seen. And for years, Morgan Changirai withstands this. They continue to build year in, year out. They're pummeled election after election. Uh, uh, they are cheated out of an election. And Morgan Changirai works through all of this. And they get to a point where they actually win. He wins the election of 2008. And the unthinkable happens. Because Robert Mugabe had never found himself in a position where he actually has lost the election. And it's clear that he has lost it. And Robert Mugabe simply refuses to go. There are no words to describe how painful that moment was for Zimbabweans. 
they then say we must have a, a runoff, but they are beating people. And so they force Morgan Changirai eventually to accept a power sharing agreement in which Robert Mugabe remains executive president and Morgan Changirai becomes the prime minister of Zimbabwe. And the country heaves a sigh of relief because economically we get a chance to recover. But more than anything else, what pained Morgan Changirai was being forced to legitimize a leadership or a governance of the country that did not deserve to be there. It was past its shelf life and people had rejected it. Because it was Morgan Changirai who coined the phrase many years earlier, Mugabe must go. And by February of 2018, Morgan Changirai finally passes away due to cancer that he had. And so this man lives long just enough to see Robert Mugabe go, but dies a man who has given birth to a new sense of involvement, right. a new sense of speaking truth to power, a new sense of courage that starts to multiply in a lot of people because there's a model now to see. That's what Morgan Changirai represented and still represents today. Well, you, I mean, you have also shown courage in your dealings with, you know, various power centers in, in Zimbabwe and, and certainly paid a heavy personal price. And you come to this through your religious faith and your religious work. And I'm wondering if you can talk a bit about the connection between faith and religious work and democracy and human rights. You know, is it, um, is it a source of hope in Zimbabwe? Uh, and what are the models for it? As a young pastor in Zimbabwe, I, I didn't understand the kind of moral authority that the office of a pastor carries when it comes to matters to do with democracy. When I did what I did, it was, it was from a very personal place of being a dejected citizen. Mm -hmm. However, I was in that office. And I think it was part of what gave the movement legs. It's part of what inspired people to believe in the fact that this is a genuine way in which we can speak truth to power and hold those in authority accountable. And to your question, I saw that work to the advantage of supporting and defending democracy, the role of being a pastor, the role of faith. And let me try and explain why. Zimbabwe is largely a Christian nation in terms of the largest religion that is practiced in Zimbabwe. And so part of the values of Christianity line up with certain global values of democracy. So things like uh, fairness, mm -hmm. justice, transparency, compassion, uh, loving your enemies, being kind to one another, protecting the weak and speaking up for those who cannot speak for themselves. The Bible is clear about those things. And so when Christians in Zimbabwe began to see a pastor, a church leader, speaking up and standing up to Robert Mugabe's regime, for them, they saw someone who was living out their faith. They saw someone who was not just preaching a sermon on Sunday, mm -hmm. but someone who had said, I will stand up and I will live out what I believe. 
And it was easy for them to then connect onto that and to say, I have the same faith. And so I believe the same things. And I'm also going to stand up and support what he's saying and what he's doing. So there's definitely a link. There's definitely a link between the two. And in Zimbabwe's case, Robert Mugabe knew that. And one of the things that he did often was to threaten pastors, was to threaten church movements. Whenever church leaders got together to speak about the state of the nation, Robert Mugabe issued statements where he warned them not to step into the jurisdiction. He would call it overstepping your jurisdiction. Uh, he spoke directly to me at a, at a speech uh, that he made in public. And he said, this pastor, this young pastor Mawarire needs to understand that there is a special way in which we treat pastors who overstep the jurisdiction that we have given them. Politics is not for you. You stay in your churches and we stay in our politics. Wow, that's that's really extraordinary. And so, Evan, can you tell our listeners a little bit about what opposition politics looks like right now in Zimbabwe. So you've told us a bit about how the death of Chengarai opened up this space. I mean, in some ways it could have been a vacuum, but possibly it opened up a space for certain kinds of opposition politics to take shape. Can you describe for us um, what this looks like on the ground right now for citizens of Zimbabwe who are looking for alternative political futures? You know, the the death of Morgan Chengarai um, was a big blow to opposition politics in Zimbabwe because this man had become an icon. And so at his death, the the test of what he had built would be found in how that would, would move forward. And one of the things that began to happen was that that became factionalized. In itself, it began to fight for power and, and literally break apart and implode from the inside. And there are many theories about that. One of them, which I hold to be quite true personally, is that Emerson Munangago, the new president who took over after the death of Mugabe, saw an opportunity to infiltrate the opposition and blow it up from the inside. And over the months and over the years that would then come, that plan would unravel spectacularly until the opposition had splintered so badly, it didn't look like there was anything left. More recently, what is exciting is the formation of a brand new political movement in Zimbabwe. And it has the kind of support that Morgan Changira had in 1999 when he started. A young man who had walked with Morgan Changirai for years. His name is Nelson Chamisa. He and a new group of young people and some, even some of the older people from uh, Morgan Changirai's time, decided to start a new movement. And so the Citizens Coalition for Change, CCC, was begun. And it's a remarkable movement. It is reanimating and re-energizing young people and the idea of a new Zimbabwe. The public engagements they have had, the rallies they have hosted in person are drawing thousands upon thousands of people. And I think the only fear that I have is that ZANU-PF will go back into what it has always done when it is threatened which is unleashing violence, murdering people, and bringing fear. 
and they have already begun to do that. You've talked a lot about the momentum of this new opposition party, but just bullet point formation. Like, what are the like what are the top priorities? Are they is it combating unemployment? Is it is it increasing voter turnout? Is it eradicating poverty in the rural sector? What what seem to be the the top political issues that are driving the successful opposition right now in Zimbabwe? The top issues that are driving the growth, or at least that are driving the need for change in Zimbabwe, are really issues to do with everyday living. Zimbabweans, like any other citizens, are able to see the effect of economic policies uh, when they look in their pockets and see how much they have to spend, or when they look at their children and see whether those children are fed clothed and well protected. And those things are not happening in Zimbabwe right now. Those are needs that Zimbabweans have. But what I love about what we have done in Zimbabwe is connect these issues, these everyday service delivery issues with the understanding that governance is what drives the delivery of those things. And so to get the services and service delivery and the infrastructure and development that we want, we have to connect the dots in reverse in the process and look at how our governance is working. But let's look at how we choose those that we elect. But let's also make sure that we show up to elect. But let's also make sure that we register to vote to elect. So we reverse engineer the the process. Right now, this new political movement that's been formed in Zimbabwe is driving towards a by-election, but we're also driving towards a presidential and national election in 2023. So the greater goal at this point is registering as many young people as we can to vote, making sure that we vote and having a strategy to defend that vote. So you you went through so much um, in your opposition struggle and as a morally guided leader of the opposition um, operating from a grassroots um, place in Zimbabwe. But you've been in the United States now since 2020. Wow, what a thing to have arrived here in the middle uh, in the middle of a historic election in the United States, where many of us felt quite reasonably that you know democracy itself was really on the ballot. How and why did you come to the United States, Evan? And what do you make of the values that we that we have here? Uh, give us a diagnosis on ourselves, Evan. I think, first of all, um, coming to the United States of America for someone um, like myself uh, was and remains a difficult decision because it was not the intention. In fact, in 2017, after our first escape with my family, I went back to Zimbabwe and I was a wanted man, but I felt that we needed to continue to fight for a better country. I felt there was a case to be made for ordinary people standing up for themselves and building the kind of Zimbabwe that they've always dreamed of uh, in getting rid of the shame on our lives that we felt when we traveled to other nations. And people would ask us, are you from Zimbabwe, the land of the $100 trillion note? And so landing back in Zimbabwe, I was immediately arrested and thrown back into Chikurubi Maximum Security Prison. I won't lie to you, it was difficult, it was painful, but I and many of my friends endured it because of this idea of a better Zimbabwe in our lifetime. 
And so coming to the U.S. was a difficult decision. And the desire to help Zimbabwe continues to be something that I nurture and I continue to be in touch with many friends and many programs and projects just to help our nation uh, go forward. And coming to the U.S., it's astounding to me to see how people who have lived in freedom all their lives, Mm -hmm. who know nothing else but being free, don't understand what they have. And I hear people talk about how oppressed they are in certain instances. And I think to myself, maybe let me paint a picture to you of what oppression really looks like. And I want to say this very carefully because I don't want to demean some of the things that people have gone through in this country that are utterly horrible. What I'm trying to zoom in on is the opportunity that this nation has given to varying opinions, thoughts and ideas to coexist. What I'm referring to is the idea that this nation has even internally to fight for the minorities, to fight for those that are systematically abused. It's unique that a system admits that we have this problem, let's rectify, let's find ways to fix it. It's amazing for me to see the different movements that are formed in America that stand for different things and that have space to operate and that have space to air their grievances, that have space to grapple with these things. Where I come from, there is no space to grapple with the system. You are not allowed to challenge the powers that be when they make mistakes that affect millions. You are not allowed to challenge the government when they murder people. And so for me, there is a sense of wanting to sound the alarm bells right. that says value the freedom that you have. Right. And the opportunity. The fact that we can challenge yes. authority yes. means we should be ashamed if we don't. If you don't. Right? Which is why I celebrate the people in this country that do challenge authority. The people in this country that stand up and say we are being oppressed or we are being murdered. That's amazing that they do that because that is the value of democracy, of being in a democracy. It's not a gift to a people. It's a right that the people have that they have realized it's ours. And we activate it. We animate that right. Well, another thing that Americans tend not to recognize is that we have our own imperial history, right? We have our own constellation of colonies, even today. Mm-hmm. We have Puerto Rico, we have Guam, like we're, we still have colonies, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we tend to think of ourselves as a post-colonial nation and we celebrate the revolution against, you know, against the British. And so we don't recognize the extent to which we may have contributed even through our soft power and our economic policies to the continuation of the oppression of colonial and post-colonial states. So when I think about Zimbabwe and I think about its previous incarnation as a British colony, one named after Cecil Rhodes, right, of all things, right? You know, and I think about all the warfare that went on to free that nation, I'm struck by the resilience of the people of Zimbabwe and the people of Southern Africa in general, given all of that. And yet, functional democracy seems still to be a dream just out of reach. Am I too pessimistic? Is there hope for functional democracy 
in Zimbabwe? I am someone who continues to describe themselves as a merchant of hope. Mm. And the production of hope is a function of what you believe is possible despite what you have seen in <laughs> the past or what you're seeing in the present. Uh-huh. And sometimes it's difficult to produce hope. But I, th- I think that there is a sense in me that recognizes that oppressive institutions and agendas do so because of their deep fear of what is possible. Mm. They do so because they know that there is an alternative which is not only possible, but probable. And so when I look at Zimbabwe, when I look at other systems of oppression, I'm reminded of a Shona saying we have in Zimbabwe. When the drum is beaten and it's sounding louder and louder, Mm. it is about to break. And so my undying hope, not only for Zimbabwe, but for oppressed peoples across the world, is that there is a season and a time that those people get stronger than the oppression that holds them back. In March of 1976, Mm -hmm. 20 March 1976, Ian Smith, the last prime minister of Rhodesia, Mm -hmm. made this remark. He said, I do not believe in the possibility of black rule in Rhodesia, not in a thousand years. Mm. Four years after that statement, Zimbabwe was free. And so for me, I look at that. Every time the oppressor makes a declaration that he will never be dismantled, that he will hold on forever, he only announces his coming defeat. Evan Maurire, thank you so much for joining us on Democracy in Danger. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an honor. Mawarire established his Generation Church in Zimbabwe in 2010. In 2016, he launched the hashtag This Flag Citizens Movement to fight corruption, injustice, and poverty in his country. Evan is a Reagan Fassell Fellow at the National Endowment for Democracy. He joined us as a guest of UVA's Democratic Futures Working Group and the Democracy Initiative, which supports this show. Democracy in Danger is also part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network, Visit democracygroup.org to find all of our sister shows. We'll be right back. Emily, you are a historian of Africa. Uh, Now, while you don't work on the southern part of the continent, this has to be a story that grips you. This has to be a story that has uh, issues and themes that plug well into your work. Can you tell us a bit about the post-colonial moment in Africa? You know, we continue to be heartbroken and frustrated by the political state of so many of these countries that have liberated themselves from, in some cases, centuries of colonial oppression. Yeah, I think um, one of the things that really stands out to me in listening to Evan's story uh, about his experience as a Zimbabwean man is the ways that he felt really constrained by the 
calcified leadership in the state as it existed under Mugabe. So, uh, like, did the colonial experience stunt what could have been a potential group of enlightened leaders? I mean, why have so few competent, committed beneficial leaders been able to rise in countries that were until recently under colonial rule. And that's not just Africa, right? That includes South and Central America. That includes South Asia. That includes Southeast Asia, right? We see the legacies of colonialism everywhere. What explains this this inability of so many countries to to just have uh, decent leaders for some period of time? I think um, in the case of Zimbabwe in particular, what you have is a very um, extraordinary history of white minority rule that broke away from British colonial rule. um, So for Zimbabwe, um, what we saw in the 1970s was a white minority leadership unilaterally separating from Britain. Mm. And it's quite remarkable what freedom fighters and grassroots liberation leaders were able to accomplish, in fact, Mugabe among them, in the 60s and the 70s in what became Zimbabwe in 1980. What's extraordinary in cases like Zimbabwe and in other countries where charismatic, very powerful leaders who were um, very much a part of the heart of liberation movements, when they became heads of state at independence, it was very difficult for these figures oftentimes to shake off the leadership that they had fought so desperately for. And at the same time, people like Mugabe, as well as other very powerful leaders um, in the early years of the liberation movements in Africa, they were immediately beset by a number of different kinds of challenges, challenges that were tied to the Cold War, challenges that were tied to economic crises. And um the political field on which one could cultivate a multivocal democracy yeah. became really um, fallow, frankly. Right. So we've seen the piling up of massive debts by many of these post-colonial nations, followed by intense pressure for particular economic policies, which just happened to benefit the banks of the global north and the governments of the global north at the expense of the people of the global south who are already trying to get out of hundreds of years of being denied opportunity and being denied the fruits of their labor, being denied the full benefits of the resources that sit under their feet. I think that's right. And I think what you'll also hear people say in the broadest sense is that there's a continuing tension between rural sectors and urban urban enclaves, right. that, that relationship between rural communities and urban sectors um, can be really fraught with different kinds of challenges that are not necessarily completely bifurcated, but they're they're tied to resource and information flows and the, the different opportunities that yeah. young people might have access to. Well, right now, we are looking at a new group of leaders who didn't necessarily grow up under the last fits of colonialism, weren't freedom fighters. They, in many cases, grew up under these rather corrupt newly oppressive governments. And we see perhaps a different tone, a different set of expectations. Should we be a bit optimistic about the future? I think so. And I think you're right to point out that generational difference. I think that this new generation of leaders who are not tied to liberation movements, they have something else to offer. And what they have to offer is their perspective as young people who grew up 
largely in the 1970s and the 80s, um, in contexts of extreme economic precarity. They saw the limitations and sometimes the failures of the post-colonial dream. And so people of Mawarire's generation see new kinds of possibility that are tied to the grassroots, that are not tied to the educated elite. Mm. And importantly, in the case of Mawarire and others, Digital technology provides new opportunities for developing communities and publics. That's all for this episode of Democracy in Danger. Stay tuned for more on religion and democracy as we turn next week to the complex role that white evangelicals play in American political life. They tend to think about these as moral issues, but the morality is hiding the quest for power, the quest for authority, and the money that is behind all of this. There's much more on our webpage, dindanger.org. And stay in touch. Tag us on Twitter at dindpodcast. That's D-I-N-D podcast. Democracy in Danger is produced by Robert Armengol. Jennifer Ludovici is our associate producer. Sydney Halliman edits our show. Our interns are Denzel Mitchell, Jane Frankel, and Ellie Bashka. Special thanks this time to UVA English professor Stephen Parks, who is a big friend of the show and made this episode possible. Support comes from the University of Virginia's Democracy Initiative and from the College of Arts and Sciences. The show is a project of UVA's Deliberative Media Lab. We are distributed by the Virginia Audio Collective of WTJU Radio in Charlottesville. I'm Emily Burrell. Thanks, Emily, for filling in for Will Hitchcock, who will be back next time. I'm Siva Vadianathan. <laughs>